In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our devices are a portal to enormous information and connectivity. They are a tremendous asset, but like anything in excess, they can be destructive. Suicide rates, self-harm, anxiety, and depression have increased significantly in the last 15 years, especially with the adolescent population. On today's podcast, we discuss the importance of establishing healthy relationships with digital media. All right, fellas, I got a story. So yesterday I teach, I'm obviously a teacher and I have, I teach a media messages class. It's basically like the psychology of how we interact with media. And we just got done with a news media unit. And um, I give the kids, we have 80 minute blocks. So when we, at the end of a prison or at the end of a unit, I always allow them time in class to, to work. They have to pull information, create, you know, a story and then bring that story visually to life so that they learn how to use things like After Effects and, you know, Adobe products. So I want to give them as much time as I can. So out of the uh, 22 students yesterday, as I'm observing them, when I say, all right, it's your turn. Time is yours. Make sure you manage your distractions, do what you can. I observed them. And as I'm watching them, about three to four kids are just sitting there asking me questions, showing me what they're doing. The rest of them were staring down at their, at their devices. How, how typical is that? Very typical. Very typical. Um, it's become the norm. And, you know, I can't, I don't want to sit there and say, even if I sat there and said, all devices must go away, I would still have, you know, 18 students that would then either put their heads down or not be able to use it. We need, we, we have to use our computers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I get, I get in a car and I put on Spotify and I don't know if you're familiar with a group called perfect circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this song plays, which I'd never heard. It's kind of a bit of a strange song, but it was, it was kind of cool. And I'm listening to the words and here are the words of the song. So that struck you. It struck me because it said addicts of the immediate keep us obedient and unaware. And I'm thinking to myself, well, we're prepping for this podcast today. I'm like, okay, that sounds exactly like what I saw today that these little devices, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they become addictive, they're immediate gratification and they keep them obedient. All right. And then it goes on in the song. It says, you know, Time to put the silicon obsession down, take a look around, and find a way in silence. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, really cool song. But, Roger, the name of the song is called Disillusioned. Mm. Are we becoming disillusioned? 
In two nationally representative surveys of U.S. adolescents. Answer the question. In grades (laughs) 8 through 12. Um, And national statistics on suicide deaths for ages 13 to 18. Adolescents' depressive symptoms, suicide-related outcomes, and suicide rates increased between 2010 and 2015. More so amongst adolescent females. And so there has been this burgeoning research over the past 15 years specifically examining these very critical questions around screen time, around social media. Because we'd have to go back to the invention of the printing press to be able to identify a period in time that created such rapid change in the way human beings communicate, share information, interact. In fact, it's created such a rapid evolution that the lives that we all live are so different than one generation ago, mm-hmm. right? You just you go back to like pre-2000 or pre-1995. It's almost unrecognizable, the shift. And so it opens up this opportunity for critical discussion on the quality of our lives with these tools, digital technology, social media, video gaming, exactly what you just mentioned with the link between these devices with instant access to stimulating information and then its role in our our health and our quality of life. So we know this. I mean, this is somewhat undebatable, I think, at this time because of the amount of research that adolescents and i'm going to stay with young people because we can measure that and i think this is the group that's probably most vulnerable adolescents who spent more time on new media which includes social media and electronic devices such as smartphones were more likely to report mental health issues and adolescent than adolescents who spent time on non-screen activities like sports homework print media, religious services. Since 2010, iGen adolescents have spent more time on new media screen activities and less time on non-screen activities, which may account for the increase in depression and suicide. We say may because we're talking about correlational data. That's right. mm-hmm. We're talking about association. So we can step back and say, well, there might be other factors. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting about act, asking questions about disillusionment because... It doesn't affect everyone the same way. There are protective factors. But there's no doubt that unmonitored screen time for a certain group of individuals is toxic and even deadly. The, um, if you think about all these, these media companies, why they exist, social media, or even like a, a, an app on your phone, there's a, a term that they all use called stickiness. You know, what can we do to make our app more sticky in terms of engagement, getting people to use it? And like any tech company, they, you know, want to fail fast, get something out there, keep learning, see what's working, what's not working. How can we get our engagement up? How can we get more people using the app? And they're constantly evolving with those metrics to improve the stickiness. Mm -hmm. And 
And that's if you think of like what social psychology is and how the brain works, it's easy to manipulate something to get to that point where you're constantly picking up the device to look at it, to play with it, to engage with it because they've gotten so good at it. And for a a young teen or an adolescent with that brain still developing, you're just a victim of it. Yeah, so... (sighs) the precedent is there for this discussion to, to just kind of, it's a broad, it's a, there's so much research on this mm-hmm. and it leads to so many illnesses and sicknesses and, you know, um, it, their mental health, everything. My question is if, if there's so much research and you pretty much could talk to anybody and say, Hey, you realize that your, you know, your screen time is affecting your mental health is affecting most of your life. Why do we keep doing it? Is it just that addictive that we just can't put it down? We talk about 75 hard. I had to bring it up because we brought it up in every podcast. But, <laughs> but seriously, why isn't that one of the one of the things? Put your phone down for 75 days. Because it's almost like saying, well, why don't we stop driving a car because it creates accidents? It's so ingrained in how we live. And that's the problem you face as a teacher. It's not like you can necessarily say, put all your phones away. But I remember when we worked together, and this is during this period where smartphones were exploding, there was the rule, school-wide rule, phones in your bags or phones in your locker. And I saw that change, not because you wanted to use technology integrated in the classroom. I saw it change because of anxious parents. What if I want to get in touch with my kid? Oh, yeah. Like I need to text them that I'm going to pick them up here or, you know, practice changed or what if something happens in the school and I have to be aware. That's why it changed in the school that you and I were working. I was going to ask you this question because early on, maybe even in this room, you said anxious parents raise anxious children. So Absolutely. yes, there's this correlation of devices, but there's also the correlation of just adults and depression and anxiety, those numbers increasing. So if that's increasing, and then you have children on devices that have anxiety and depression, is it the parents that are causing it? Or is it, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the co-variables that you're talking about, like this high correlation. But if parents are, are the same, and they're raising children that have these same tendencies as them, is that not correct? Sure, it's a factor. I mean, you know, we learn within our environments. Our, our realities are shaped that way. Um, mm-hmm. We bring up something is- interesting, and this is around self-presentation. I'm just going to read this. In 1956, Irving Goffman published a landmark book titled The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. In it, he argued that life is like a dramatic performance. The stage we act on is life, and we assume different roles when we interact with different people with a particular goal in mind, to manage how they perceive us. According uh, to Goffman, we are never free of this built-in human theater. We are acting all the time. So this is prior to the internet, of course, 1956. A great deal of research um, and theory does support this thesis. We spend much of our time trying to manage what others think of us, this impression management, on a very 
subconscious level, right? Um, there are, however, there are limits to the degree that we can, you know, actually engage in this if we are offline. Um, we can do our best, I think, to, you know, like pimp and prep for an interview. You can, you can act your best as long as you can, but ultimately life will catch up with you. Time will come up where you'll be vulnerable. You'll get to know people. The face-to-face -face interaction and connection begins to reveal vulnerabilities. And then you're exposed. You're exposed to our all own collective humanity. No one's perfect. Mm -hmm. We all make mistakes. Um, we're vulnerable. We're humans. Rough things happen. And within that, we get a more realistic view of what it means to, to actually just be a human being, right? Yeah. Um, social media, like by contrast, it shapes the way we can present ourselves. And it's new. Um, we, you can post your most glamorous photographs, your most perfect moments. <laughs> your highlight reels. It's your highlight reel. And you actually shape an identity for the outside world based on this new medium. So you're actually creating a, a new self. Mm -hmm. And this is just fascinating to me Ooh. because um, you can see when, when you start trying to go through the nuance, and nuance is important because social media doesn't affect everybody negatively. But there certainly is a group of people where it is toxic. There's no doubt it, it's toxic. And it tends to be in this terms of like social comparison and how it makes you feel. So if you're looking at that curated promotion of self, that is this, in a similar way an actor would present themselves in the media and through Hollywood, that impression management, they're building a brand. And you are a vulnerable teenager and you are comparing yourself and you know yourself, you know your struggles, you look at yourself every day, you look at yourself without filters. You know, it's not everything's a perfect photograph. You're not, uh, you're not living this amazing world of travel and parties and engagement. You are living the day-to-day -day of the struggle it means to be human. And if you're comparing yourself to this fake life, then it, it's going to intensify, intensify and promote negative emotions and well-being. And that's, that is the social comparison theory, yes. correct? Yeah. So if I'm, a, if I'm somebody that feels inadequate, I have low self-esteem, I go on um, TikTok and I'm following people and I'm watching them, I'm then also comparing my own life to these individuals that look so successful and happy and that leads to negative thoughts and feelings and emotions. And it does begin to answer some questions because there's gender differences, uh, sex differences, gender differences around this. So adolescent females... This experience seems to be more profoundly painful. So you see that jump, that spike post-2012 in depression, self-injury, and suicide in that vulnerable age range. Not everybody, of course, right? So there are individual differences. And so I am interested as a psychologist to know what are those differences? How can we support protective factors for those who may be vulnerable? But first you have to you have to determine who is most vulnerable to begin with. So let's start with what about adolescent development for a female creates that level of vulnerability? 
well, you're you're being judged on appearance, whereas males may be more judged on performance. Good point. And like that's a social factor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the, fi- the physical changes of the body in general. I mean, during the time period of adolescence, I'm imagining that's got to be very difficult when bodies begin to change and, you know, they're being viewed now by other like m- males. They're, they're being objectified in some cases. That's got to be very difficult for adolescent females. Yeah. When I was conducting my research on eating disorders and working with adolescent eating disorder population, you know, that was one of the more, you know, challenging and, and critical factors that stand out within relational psychology. The way that uh, girls relate to each other was different than, than guys. So there was a much stronger relational component of inclusion and sharing their lives emotionally. But there was this inner competition that would emerge too. And we would see this in popular culture when we look at Mean Girls and some other uh, movies where that queen bee kind of rises. Yeah, it's always existed. It's just now migrating over to digital media platforms. Yeah, it, well, it kind of intensifies it, doesn't it? Well, it, just because of the reach and the amplification of it. Yep. So you like, let's imagine you had to deal with that in school, right? You're dealing with the social hierarchy, the competition for friends, the competition mm-hmm. for boyfriends, um, feeling excluded, being part of the group, all these things that were natural social components that have always been there. You could go home from school or you could enter a sport or you can do something else and get some relative respite from that, right? Maybe you get on the phone. So back in you know, the 90s or 80s, you'd, the, you'd be on the phone. Uh, you know, girls would talk a lot more, right? They, yeah. they, much more than guys, so they, they connect relationally. But now it's instantaneous. You can't get away from it. And it brings up the other thing that seems to stand out in some of the literature, that on social media, you can act in ways that you wouldn't have acted previously face to face. It's social distancing, you know, not in the uh, you know the COVID era of social distancing, but just the physical distance between you and whoever you're attacking. You almost have this not. You know, you're not going to have to look the person in the eye face to face and have them come back at you or try and defend themselves. Cyberbullying, cyberbullying, and, and, but- tr- and trolling was intensified. It increased. Yeah, I was. Um, I heard somebody also make the connection to road rage. You know, there's something about sitting in a vehicle. Oh, yeah. You're protected in this environment. You do and say things that you wouldn't say to somebody else face to face because it's uh, it's almost, it, it's this other distance. You know, you may have like 12 to 15 feet, but then you're protected by these walls of a vehicle. You act a certain way that you wouldn't if you were right next to the person. Car muscles instead of beer muscles. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It gets a little more sophisticated than that because I was looking into some other research. So- Let's say that in my mind, I have this story about you harming me, for mm-hmm. example. Like, so you're, you're a them. You're, a, I'm, you're at a distance now. Like, now you harm me. And I develop emotions around it. If then I'm in your presence, I can pick up on subtle facial cues that communicate emotion. I can then see you as a human. So there's more oneness versus disconnectedness. And then I'm much more likely to like challenge the story in, in my mind and see you and with your, your, your traits of humanity, right? So there's more of a connection. So obviously you're not going to act the same way in person as if you are 
placed in an, a them category and there is a physical distance, right? So that cyberbullying and that trolling actually dehumanizes the person in some ways. There's a lot of studies about um, trolling and we've, we've had a discussion about it. And uh, one of the bigger studies was on Facebook and they looked at the type of personalities of a troll. A lot of them are anonymous. You know, they'll start their own account and they'll have like the random letters uh, or, or a name that might be evil in its, in its description. But they, um, they have a, a kind of like a narcissistic personality and they have a lot more followers. So they'll engage and try and build their audience, but then they're engaging through social media in a very negative way and putting out these hateful messages and it amplifies the environment and makes it very negative. And not everybody takes that approach, but the way that those social media algorithms work is the things that get more engagement have a tendency to get bumped up and, and hateful and sometimes mean messages have a tendency to get bumped up. So then you're exposed to it more often. And it's just a small percentage of the population that are putting out these really, you know, hateful, negative comments. And it just seems to be the environment becomes more toxic because you're exposed to it more often. Yeah. And we're talking about social media, but then there's that access to so many other things on the internet too, whether they're forums, uh, pornography, which definitely has to be another mm -hmm. podcast episode for us. Because we're beginning, you know, all this shapes your idea of who another person is or who you are in relation to them. So we are so influenced by our messaging and our culture. And that programming impacts our idea of what is reality. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question. Um, when brought up to the students, because I've done this several times, I go, hey, I mean, you guys get your phones out. And I want you to look at, because iPhone allows you to see how much screen time you've had if you turn it on. And I said, just, I'm not going to judge, you know, let's just take a look. Kids pulled their phones out and I did over under, you know, anybody uh, under five hours, like one, one student raised their hand, anybody under, you know, uh, or over 10 hours and so on, you know, class raised their hand. One kid, you know, goes, I have 17 hours yesterday. 17, hours, 17 in hours in one in day one, in one day. And here's the thing. I didn't want to, not even awake like, 17 I, I didn't want to poke fun at it, but I'm like, it was like a badge of honor for these guys. They were like looking at each other, almost like they want to give each other high fives. So the, the, the general, okay. So this generation obviously thinks that screen time is not a problem, even though many of them are exhibiting issues and problems. But when I asked them, why wouldn't you want to give your phone up, say for 30 days? I, I, I offered this once. I said, if you give your phone up 30 days, I'll give you 100 for the semester. But you have to get <laughs> you know, parental permission and everything. Nobody would take it, right? And we got it down to like, one, one, one girl said, I'll do it for a week. And I'm like, a week? I mean, it's so, they're so addicted. But my question is, when I said to them, why do you have to be on it? There were two things. One was, I guess you would call it FOMO and fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. But the other one was, well, I connect with my friends that way. It's, it's all about connection. And based off of what you were just saying, is it possible that a person in real life, Sean, like you said, eye to eye, you lose the capability to communicate eye to eye because you only think you can connect through a digital device? Yeah, I think you need to learn how to have social skills. Yeah. 
Yeah. So they're not they're not seeing that as a thing, but yet all of them are exhibiting the inability to communicate, or they they have anxiety about communicating, you know, in front of people, uh, right? It's it just seems strange that they're not seeing that this is this is problematic. They look at it like, no, this is we're all going to be sitting at home one day, and this is how we're all going to communicate. It's only going to be through phones. This generation doesn't know any different, though. Your students are so unique because they were born. What year were they born? Your high school students? Uh, 2008? Yeah, about. Yeah. They don't know any different. They were born into a world with this. So this is their, their reality. One thing that we as psychologists have always known is there's decades of research that indicate that when we, when we experience strong, positive, or negative emotions, we are intensely motivated to share them. So in the past, we'd have to create a social meeting. We'd have to do something in order to, to share it. A physical meeting. Yeah, physical right. meeting, yeah. right? Slideshows of our vacation to <laughs> Italy. <laughs> click, 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 hey, click, let, click, let, click. Let's go out to let's go out to dinner and celebrate my promotion. Or, you know, this is happening with my kids. Can we meet for coffee? You know, something like that. But it's changed that now. Mm-hmm. You can instantaneously share positive and negative emotions in the moment you experience them, which is can be impulsive. Did you guys watch um, uh, Mad Men, the TV show? Love that show. There was that one kind of like pivotal episode, um, and it was for Kodak, the kaleidoscope. And I don't know if you remember, it was um, Draper standing in front doing the presentation, and he was clicking through the pictures. And there was a moment where he, the words that he was conveying were so powerful that there were other people in the room with them. They started like weeping and got up to like leave. So that is that physical environment of, of like connecting with somebody on emotional level through imagery that is translated over to the digital platform. But now we're just like overwhelmed and inundated with it so much that we're almost becoming desensitized to it a little bit. Because D- disillusioned. there's so much disillusion. There you go. A callback. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, I, I do. I think that it's it's funny because it's like, isn't it a paradox? It the, We're sold on the fact that social media, Facebook particularly, connects us with each other. Mm-hmm. Yet what's really happening is we're all, we are really all becoming disconnected. But it's just, it's different. Our physical, our communicating physically with people has just dropped off in, in high school. It's it's really kind of sad. Like the the best I can tell you when they when they get uh, when they're all talking to each other is at lunch. You go into lunch and you watch them, but even then you'll see their phones are up. Yeah, they're looking down. It's almost like they're trying to multitask. Of oh, I'll talk to you for a little bit, but I want to see what's going on here. Or then they'll put their phone up in front of the other person's face and share what they're seeing on their screen. And it's just like that's to me that's not connecting. You, um, but I'm old. Roger, you shared the um, that social psychologist, um, Jean Twenge. Yeah, she's the one who's really been on top of this as far as examining generational differences and the impact of this media on this new generation. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that I think, and Kelly, maybe you can confirm this, um, was the way that our generation, you know, when you turn 16, what's the first thing you do? Well, when you drive a car, there you go. Yeah. You, you, you drive a car and the generation now they're not getting their driver's license. And I think I, even at graduation, there's still like a quarter of them that have no desire to, 
get their license and it has nothing to do with living in a city or being in a rural environment. It's just, they don't, they don't feel the need to it. So she was also talking about, um, how adolescence, childhood, uh, the childhood period is creeping into adolescence and adolescence is creeping into young adulthood in terms of development Mm. and it's taking longer. And she was tying it back to parents because parents are older uh, when they have their children, they have less children, so therefore they're more protective of the children, which means the children aren't doing the things that are generally, in terms of development, get them into those next stages of going from childhood to adolescence, adolescence into young adulthood. And I, it totally makes sense to me. Thoughts on that, Kelly? No, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I think that, and back to... Um, is it tw- you said twenty? Her last name Twangy. Jean Twangy. G W E N. She's a pref- professor of psychology okay, she, for everyone at uh, San Diego State. So University. when I was when I was looking her up and reading, I found one thing from a Washington Post article. It was in 2018, and it said why teens are obsessed with their phones. She says the rise of smartphones has led to a decline in face-to-face interaction, which is an important part of human development. This can lead to a lack of empathy and a lack of an ability to communicate effectively. And I saw that because of empathy. I'm seeing that as well as a problem. Not being able to understand. We're supposed to be raising a generation that cares about each other. Mm-hmm. Yet, but through research and, and just in her article, she's almost like asserting that these, these devices, the use, the heavy use of screen time is doing the exact opposite. It's not allowing kids to learn empathy and face-to-face. It's not allowing them to. But So I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that as well. It's interesting because we're we're really identifying that isolation is a public health crisis because it impacts us on so many different levels. First of all, we did see the impact of social isolation from the pandemic on multiple variables. But it does, it, it impacts emotional development and progress. Yeah. Empathy is developed through more engagement. Jean Twangy, just for our audience, she's author of the book, iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. So answers a lot of those questions. Interesting. But if we talk about a, a social development perspective, and if we have to think about protective factors, because we do have to transition this to practical advice, mm-hmm. we have to be able to educate parents based on this research and understand that for some people that it will be potentially deadly. It is a toxic way of living. We have to realize who they are. But if protective factors matter, and so balance matters, a lot does depend upon the degree of face-to-face contact. And that's what happens when you start looking at the nuance. You can have social media And it can actually enhance your relationships and your quality of life when used in a specific way. If it facilitates more engagement and more support and there is an adequate amount of exercise, if there's an adequate amount of movement, um, social engagement, doing things outside of your home, then we don't really see the adverse effects in the same way. But if someone is isolated and inactive, it is poison. So there's no doubt to me that there has to be a balance in this conversation. 
to what degree is social media part of your life? Yeah, so I, I agree balance is important, like anything, right? It's just you know, finding a way to incorporate it, just not make it the priority. My concern, and I'll go back to that stickiness of uh, any digital media platform or app, is they're smart and they know what works and they can manipulate the human brain. And I'm just going to pull this. I pulled this from uh, Meta, uh, their report, because they report financial data because they're, you know, in the stock exchange, everything. So I believe this is from maybe just about six months ago. Nearly one in six posts shown on Facebook and Instagram feeds are now coming from accounts that users don't follow and are based on artificial intelligence recommendations. That could rise to nearly one in three posts shown to users coming from accounts they don't follow by the end of 2023. And Meta saw a 30% increase in the time that users are engaging with Reels, uh, which is their version of like TikTok. So you may jump onto social media with the anticipation of following something about carnivore diet or about healthy lifestyles and then get pulled into content that you didn't want to see and then you get stuck in it for a period of time that you didn't want to do and the data is showing that that's happening so how does a young teenager adolescent brain control itself it doesn't parents have to restrict access yeah there's no way around this without talking about parents restricting access can i can i you sent me an Instagram post from an, uh, an influencer that most people would know her, Kate Winslet. Can I play that? Um, because I think she is obviously seeing as her children are growing up what we're seeing. And um, it's incredible what, you know, what she had to say. So let me just play this for you. some magic formula i don't want to be accused of being a celebrity standing up on a soapbox but it is possible to just say no you know my children don't have social media and haven't had social media there are many fake accounts out there for myself and also my children weirdly so i'm told um but it's possible to just say no you can't have it you can't have it because i want you to enjoy your life i want you to be a child i want you to look at the clouds and not photograph them and post them on your Instagram page and then decide whether or not the clouds were worth looking at because someone thought that they were rubbish. It's like, it's, it's tampering with a, ba- a sometimes a very basic level of self-esteem, but on a bigger and darker scale, it is tampering with young people's self-esteem to the extent that they are completely losing a sense of who they are. Thoughts on that? I think Rose is smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there was still enough room on that, you know, on yeah. that door that she was floating. <laughs> that the truth it is, is we have to eventually answer the question, are, why are parents afraid to say no? Why are they afraid to restrict access when we know that it is something that's so dangerous? It's not just with smartphones. It's also with unhealthy food. Mm-hmm. It's a number of other things. We see a generation of parents who are afraid to tell their kids no. That's why, <laughs> like, so there's got to be something about that. Why is it? Fear. Is it fear of not having their children like them? Fear of not doing the right thing as a parent? Like, what is the fear though? It's it's easy for me to say no, and I don't I, I don't emotionally react if a, if my kids get upset that I said no. I don't have maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a psychopath. I don't have an emotional reaction to it. 
I don't. I just don't. I mean, because you have a certain belief system and you're in education and you and you think about things in one specific way, which is you know often trying to understand like that that nuance that exists. But think about parents, and this is my experience with parents, and it's it's the expert culture in the United States. It's the media. They have been bombarded with constant messaging about how parents can screw up kids and how certain emotions are problematic. And you need to look out for this and you need to be careful of this. All these bad things that can happen, depression, substance abuse, suicide, you name it. It is a fear-driven culture. So they are afraid to act. It is safer for them to to rely on the messaging from the experts. So I get this from parents all the time. We're, we're talking about like food and mood and how nutrient deficient and metabolically sick some of these kids are. But they're afraid to say no because they don't want to create an eating disorder. Because some of these mothers in particular were shamed that if you do anything around the restriction of food, in some way that's going to create body image problems. Mm-hmm. That came from American society and culture. It's not science driven. It's not research driven. It's fear driven. So it certainly can sell all the processed snacks and the cereals and the crap that the American food industry wants to sell, and it's worked. So they allow them to eat six, seven, eight times a day snacking, and they're on a blood sugar roller coaster, but they're afraid to institute any boundaries. They're also scared of their kids' emotional reaction. They don't want to create depression. So it's as, it's, it's, it's as if they express sadness or or they react to them in a negative way that somehow is some precursor to an emotional disorder that they're going to have to deal with when it's quite the opposite. Um, additionally, we've talked about the economic factors too. If, if you have a two-parent working home, right, which is a lot of Americans in society, you're outside of the home more than you are in home. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the quality of your interactions certainly matter to those parents and Parental guilt is a factor. So if you want to have positive interactions and a positive relationship with your kids, you're probably not going to enter into clear boundary setting because it's going to affect their response. So in some ways, you have to completely shift how you think about your your kids. And to me, the answer is to think dialectically. You can set up boundaries. You can say no. They can be upset and view that as love right? They exist at the same time. You can't, if you think about these behaviors, being a parent limits boundaries saying no as something that is unloving or hurting your kids. Well, then that belief system is going to impact how you parent. I'll, I'll, I agree with that. And I will say um, my child's only two years old, so it's very early and uh, we only have one child. It starts at that age. Probably only we'll have one child, but you're right. And, And this is the, the instinct for a parent, and I see it from my wife and from myself, is when your child is um, is upset or wants something and is whining and crying, is you think you need to comfort them and to you know let them know that it's going to be okay because you don't want to see them upset. But depending on the situation, you have to sometimes pull yourself back and, and think and just not react and say, like, no, he needs to sit with this for a while. Yeah, because they have to learn to self soothe as well they have to learn to be on their own with these negative thoughts and emotions and i do think that even and again i know i'm we're not perfect parents we've done the same but i know that when we interact with our child 
if we go in and just say, it's okay, everything's going to be okay. I'll take, I'll take care of it for you. I just think that that sets a very bad precedent for that child for the rest of his life. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm way off, but I, I, I think they need to learn on their own how to come down, how to, you know, how to say, I apologize. You know, yeah. I'm sorry for acting out. We're not seeing this. In fact, most kids, you know, parents will go in and, and take care of that. And then they never get to the opportunity to say apologies or to have a discussion about what just happened. Yeah. Like that just goes away until the next time. Am I wrong? No, there's the, the modeling of parents, right? The modeling behaviors. So like if a parents fight, fighting parents in front of children, I think is probably a good thing if it's done respectfully and then it ends in a peaceful and, and loving way because then a child sees yeah. that's how you engage in, in conflict appropriately. Right. And one of the critical questions scientifically for psychologists is to understand more about emotion regulation. So when you talk about instituting boundaries and even a young child being upset the exposure to that feeling the validation of it experiencing it but then knowing how to self-soothe is the critical factor in emotion regulation without those skills you are more likely to turn to something external in order to self-soothe which is absolutely internal so the handing of an ipad to calm a kid down toxic dangerous giving candy to get them to be quiet, right? Or, or some dessert. Toxic, right? The, the shaping of a kid to turn to something external. That's why I loved timeout. Timeout when provided appropriately for young kids. The way that it was communicated for a lot of people in negative, in American culture was to view timeout as a, a punishment, right? I'm going to give you something you don't like. And used as a threat to try to control behavior. When timeout, when used appropriately, is an opportunity to teach emotion regulation skills. It is a removal from something that is stimulating. Mm -hmm. It's the process of learning that there is an appropriate way to interact and engage at this time. And it also supports parental authority. So you do what I tell you to do, and that's necessary. Parents have to be authority figures in their home. Too many think they have to be a friend. And that diffusion of those boundaries, it gets extremely messy because developmentally, they're not ready to have that degree of independence. They need you to be able to create healthy limits and boundaries. There's a safety in that. So imagine, Sean, implementing timeout. Timeout is about going to a place of quiet calm, away from the stimulation, and getting yourself calm. Mm. It's very important for parents then to go over once the child has calmed down, get down on a knee and say something, depending on where they are developmentally, why are you in timeout? So they understand, right? And it's got, it's got to be simple. How did you feel, right? Now you're building emotional intelligence. And then once they're calm, you say things like, I'm so proud of you that you've been able to calm yourself down and now we can talk. And then you hug. What are you reinforcing? You're reinforcing the strength, the skillfulness of calming your emotions to act in a way that is pro-social and effective. Mm -hmm. Some These things have been pulled away, yanked away from our development. And then you see the results. You see why we have college-age students visiting college counseling centers at such a high rate. The 
difficulty they have to regulate their own emotions to be effective and get their social needs met has dissipated greatly with the use of this of social media and parents who have responded accordingly. So we need parents in a lot of ways to take a very critical and important step of instituting boundaries. It is my belief that parents should be taking away technology on a fairly consistent basis as a means of just a reset, right? Um, there needs to be some vacation from social media. Even if they didn't do anything wrong, not just as a consequence. From social media or just devices? Devices, yeah. right? Um, read a book, okay? Interact. Extracurricular activities are critical, critical. Sports, music, drama, art, engagement in these things is absolutely necessary. Who are some of these at-risk kids? They don't have this involvement. So they are more isolated. They're more connected to their phones, which as Sean said, these devices and the companies behind them are going to do everything they can to hook you, hook the brain, right? That's why there's debate on whether you can create these as diagnoses of addiction, right? There's this big debate out in the field. And believe me, we don't need any more psychiatric diagnoses. But can uh, devices, can social media, can video games, can they, do they have this separate category as, uh, as an addiction? So there is no current diagnosis for, for um, like screen time addiction that you know of? I've kind of pulled myself away from the DSM. Right. And so the last thing I've heard is it's been these conditions that are up for debate. Okay. So they might be in there. The DSM is so large and has all these conditions for further study. I'm not aware of I've pulled myself What's so the far tr- away. The traditional definition for addiction is if it interferes with work or personal relationships. Y- yeah. I mean, it, it has to impair functioning. That's one. But mm-hmm. then there's other things about it like tolerance. Right, so when something's addictive, tolerance increases, and so you need more and more yeah, of yeah. whether that's the substance or something else yeah. in order to identify it as an addiction. And so, I don't know if it's clear. Someone can be, you know, a heavy video game player, and it impairs their social or academic world, but they're not continuously increasing their gaming until it hits seventeen hours. Right, we don't see that. Right. It's not like there's an increased tolerance and you need more of it to get the same reward. So it gets murky. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that devices and your increased use of those correlates with um, like depression and anxiety and just poor mental health, what are your thoughts on mental health-based apps? <laughs> well, um, I'm not going to contradict myself today because we're all pulled to say things in you know, all or nothing terms. Yeah. My guess is, is that they can be helpful for some, for some people mm-hmm. uh, when they're managed and they're not associated with an overabundance of screen time. So let's say, let's use an, an app like the Calm app or some other meditation apps. Yep. Right? If you use that in the morning, uh, obviously, that can be very health promoting, but if you are getting hooked in to your life is only through that screen, then I think obviously this is just more and more 
opportunities for screen dependence that has negative mental health consequences. I go back to the idea of any business. There's a reason why those, you know, Headspace apps or Calm or whatever exist. It's not for altruism. It's mm. what are the, there's three ways like a business can make money. Like either you're selling a good, you're um, subscribing and paying to subscribe to that service, or uh, it's advertising uh, revenue based. And if those are the ones that are free. So anything that you're downloading and using for free, your eyeballs, your ears, that's their revenue. Mm. So you're, you're for, it's for advertising. So go back to the idea of like stickiness and increasing your daily average users, monthly average users. It can get to a point where something that has intentions of being very health, healthy in, in its goal can migrate down towards that path of unhealthy and excess, excessive use. So there's some debates out here about the government's role in being able to protect teens from big tech. There's there's already examples of um, laws in states for parents and children. Um, I, actually, I think it was um, Gene uh, Twenge said that in the state of Illinois, it's illegal to leave a child under the age of 14 years old unattended. This is a slippery slope, right? <laughs> we used to go out and like ride our bikes. I would, I'd be like four or five years old and we'd be out. Yeah, that's nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. This is making, this is the, the state being mommy and daddy. And so I am, in front of me, I have a op-ed from Jean Twangy, her opinion and perspective on it's time for states to step up with protecting teens from big tech. And it's interesting, she has six suggestions. Okay. And I want to get your thoughts on them. You going to uh, read them all off or we want to go one by one? We'll go one by one. Okay. All right, let's start with the first one. In, enact age verification laws. So states should pass an age verification law to require social media platforms to verify the age of any users in that state so that no minors under the age of 13 could create social media accounts. Currently under federal law, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act prohibits internet platforms from collecting personal identity information about children ages 13 and younger, making it the de facto age for social media. However, children younger than 13 can still gain access, and these younger children are more vulnerable to the harmful mental health effects. Age verification would help ensure the current age limit is effectively enforced. My question, is it? Can can age verification really determine no. who's There'll behind be, that device? There'll be ways around it no yeah, matter there's what they do. There's going to be, that, that's just, it sounds like a, a good controlling idea that will absolutely fizzle because they'll find a way to get around it. Yeah, my question is, why can't parents do that? And parents have to, I was just going to say. It, it should be parents. And yeah. I, would, I would say, I would make this argument. If, um, if you're able to open up an anonymous account through social media and then be a troll then why wouldn't you be able to get around age verification? It's the same thing, right? Sure. You would just lie. You would lie. Number two is require parental consent for minors to open a social media account. Fair? Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. again, involving parents. the parents. It's not taking anything away from the parents. Yeah. Okay. Um, number three, mandate 
full parental access to minors' social media accounts. So states should also pass laws requiring social media platforms to give parents or guardians full access to all social media accounts created by minors between the ages of 13 and 17. Full access would ensure that parents have control of their minor uh, minor's child account settings so they can restrict its privacy review friend requests and know exactly what their child is doing online no i'm 100 percent against that that doesn't allow a parent to establish a trusting relationship with their child if you're monitoring them like big brother yeah it takes away the flexibility and, and nuance parents can still do all these things without the state requiring it yeah. right they right. just need and awareness of what what their kids are on they need awareness of that they need to educate themselves on what these apps are or you know and they need, like I said, set set the boundaries of screen time during the day. It's it's just so we it's it's simple, you know. You get one hour, right? Or you have to if you want to earn screen time, you know. I need you to read for you can shut an hour. You can shut like, the internet off in your home. You sure. can shut it down at certain hours where it's where it becomes very important to act. It difficult to access any screens, but then you can also, you know, use your own f- phone devices your own control panels to be able to shut down access for your kids things. So I think the, the answer here is not to look for the state to, to be more of mommy and daddy, but to support parents and being parents. This next one is what really gets me enact a complete shutdown of social media platforms at night for kids. States should pass a law requiring social media companies to shut down access to their platforms for all 13 to 17 year old accounts during bedtime hours no god that is just state tells you when and when you cannot look at something it's um what was it back in the day television would go off air yeah and they would play the national anthem yeah. like that was your your kind of cute like blank God, screen you should you should go to bed you should go to sleep yeah <laughs> big brother uh, number five, create causes of action for parents to seek legal remedies with presumed damages. Any law that a state passes to protect kids online should include a private cause of action to enable parents to bring lawsuits on behalf of their children for violation of the law. These companies aim to maximize profit, so there must be sizable enough threat in order for them to correct their behavior. You can sue a company for anything. You don't need something, uh, legislation to allow that to happen. Why, w- why would you? I mean, you can, you can have a class action lawsuit against any company if you feel like there's harm that's been done. But the whole thing is... She's, Think about taking, the mentality. Taking accountability away from parents is all this is doing. Yeah, and is. giving You're it right. to the government. Yeah. So that the parents get a free pass if, some, you know, if, if their child is on the screen all the time. Like, I don't agree with any of this. Yep. At all. Mm-hmm. A parents need to be held accountable. You're a parent, first and foremost. Hardest job in the world. Do your job. Model good behavior. That's another thing I was going to bring up. I don't want to go away from your article. So, But, you know, finish this. But what about that? Modeling good behavior. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, we're talking about young, uh, young kids and teens in this podcast. But how many uh, parents are addicted to their own phones yeah. and then go home. And instead of having a conversation at the dinner table, they sit there and they stare at their phones. I mean, that's mo- you're modeling and then you're telling your kids hypocritically, hey, no more screen time, right? Yeah, th- there's something familiar. I don't remember. If you remember the early 90s when they were talking about bans on certain music for kids? Yeah. It was, um, uh, this is like Al Gore's wife, right? Tipper Gore. Tipper yeah. Gore. Yeah. yeah, there was the... Um, 
Parental advisory, explicit lyrics, labels. And it was around rap music, I think, for the most part. And, and some NWA. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And some, I think, some like metal, satanic metal kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's the same idea that the that the state, the government, has uh, believes that they can enter in and make decisions on your personal life. And that's where the protections of freedom are so important. But the freedom comes with responsibility, and I think that's the message here. If we're going to talk about health and well-being, it comes with a responsibility. Don't expect other people to do things for you. You know, you, when you start directing your outrage outward, which is what we see on, on social media, is this outrage culture of viewing yourself from an oppressive category and that your own life and your, your own happiness and well-being is going to be mostly correlated with what others are going to do to you. That's kind of toxic. Mm. And that is fueled on social media. The last one she has on here is enact a, a complete ban on social media for those under the age of 18, which certainly isn't not, it's not what I'm advocating for. Mm. And when we have our DBT parent trainings here, we talk about you know, dialectical balance. A lot of the things that we advocate for. Social media and engaging in technology, it's not stopping. Yeah. Right? Um, it's, a, it's, it's evolving. And I was watching that movie. Do you remember uh, what was it? Billy Bean from uh, the, the general manager for the Oakland A's? I just watched that like uh, two ball? or three weeks Moneyball. ago. Moneyball. Yeah. Right. He has this great, there's this great scene where he's talking to an old scout. Yeah. And the scout at that time is making the case that he knows better, right? Like he has been viewing this talent for all these years. And there's an intuition and there's something that he knows that can't be determined by data. And Billy Bean character is played by Brad, Brad, Pitt. Brad Pitt goes, you don't know. I've sat with you at the kitchen table. You don't know any more than I know. Adapt or die. Mm -hmm. Adapt or die. <laughs> and, and so we're not stopping adaptation and evolution but we do have to put brakes on this or humanity can be at peril it's the same idea as ai yeah right if we know that we start to to seek out connection through non-personal means through digital media mm -hmm. there are consequences right there is going to be an ai therapist I think it's already begun to, to be developed. So that all that means is that you are, you're getting on a screen with a, with a fake therapist who has, <laughs> who whatever you say, there's an algorithm for the appropriate response. Yeah. Don't we just become robots then? Well, I think it's missing out on the key point of like human connection and human understanding and somebody relating to you that a, a algorithm you can, well, I guess you can make the argument that what was that movie <laughs> with um, uh, not Ripper Phoenix, but his brother uh, Joaquin Phoenix? You was it? Oh yeah, yeah. Where he falls in love with the A algorithm, robot. which was Scarlett Johansson's voice. Mm. So, I mean, can you establish an emotional relationship with an algorithm if it's going to say all the things that you want it to say? It's just it's it's scary. Well, we just watched uh, Megan last night. Oh, I want to see that. So now you're talking about. <laughs> robots coming to life and actually having conversations although that was pretty terrifying i don't think anybody's <laughs> going to want that doll but yeah that's what you were that's where uh, according to where thing that's where we're headed right yeah. to, to get this kind of 
AI to be able to discuss and have human interactions with us to solve our problems. I want to go back to, um, you know, restricting devices and like preventing kids from accessing them. And I think the best um, correlate or the best uh, relationship that I can understand it would be like alcohol usage. So when we were teenagers, we probably drank alcohol and we were 16, 17 years old. And then we went to college, right? And you, you learned almost like a healthy relationship with alcohol in terms of like what you were, what you, how much you can consume without getting out of control. And I remember freshman year, there would be people that could go to a party and they can handle themselves. And then there was people that had never had alcohol before. And those were the ones that would get into trouble, blackout. Were you one of those? I I had a healthy relationship with it. Okay. Um, And and Jordan Peterson talked about, um, he did a study, uh, it was probably like over 20 years ago, about alcohol and teenagers. And over time, there was, and he thinks like a bell curve, right? There were people that drank alcohol early and then abused it and continued to abuse it. And those people became almost like delinquents and, you know, would go into like prison or become alcoholics. Um, There were some that uh, engaged, uh, made mistakes, but didn't completely abstain. And those were the ones that generally were more successful in their careers as they developed because they had developed the skills around how to properly engage in, in, in those environments. And there was those that completely limited, withheld, and didn't engage at all. And those people were generally had um, like anxiety and depression or s- social anxiety because they never learned how to engage properly. And I'll, I'll see if I can find the study and I'll include the link there. But anything that you restrict 100%, it's going to lead to problems later on. Like you need to learn how to have a healthy relationship with things. And that comes like, from making mistakes, right? Like prohibition. Yes, prohibition. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going to find a way to get the alcohol and you're going to overindulge in it. But it's even not about alcohol. It's yeah. about social media. Like you yeah. need to learn how to have a healthy relationship with everything. Absolutely. That's that idea of seeking balance. balance. And when you talk about recommendations, certainly for parents, you have to make sure that your kids are engaging in social interaction. Offline, yeah, offline, face-to-face. So make sure there is enough activities and opportunities to engage in non-screen time interaction. Can I just share one? Just yesterday, my son had like a little play date with our neighbor next door. They're both two years old. And he came home and his ears were bleeding. <laughs> and I said like to my wife, I was like, he's got blood in his ear. And she goes, well, the other kid was a little aggressive. He was real excited to have someone come over and play, and he he's his communication's not there yet, so he kept going to our son and like you know grabbing his ears or like grabbing his hair, and like the mom would have to come in and kind of like swat the arm down, put the kid off to the side, get him to calm down. And I was like, well, what did you do? And she was like, well, now I feel bad because I didn't do anything to protect him. I was like, no, you did exactly what you're supposed to do. You need to let him experience that, and he needs to number one learn when the line has been crossed and how to protect himself and fight back if he needs to. But it seems like this kid was just so excited. It wasn't coming from a place of anger that he was confused by the action because he felt maybe pain, but it wasn't anger on the face. So this is part of development. It's like puppies when they're biting their ears and attacking one another. Let it happen. Just to clarify, he wasn't being called Dumbo, was he? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. He is my my son. So those (laughs) things are targets. Because he might have been trying to get those things to start flapping. <laughs> but anyway, um, at, uh, so last night, he, he, my son would 
start to like hit me. Um, and I would just, I put my arm up and I would deflect it and I'd be like, no, don't hit. And, and then he would, he was starting to learn those boundaries. And I think this takes time. Do you remember your biting problem when you were younger? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I know the story. You had a biting problem. I, my, my mother told the story that when I was young, I, I would bite either neighbors or parents and other kids. And then, um, I bit somebody broke skin and then my mom grabbed me and then bit my arm and I never bit again. So when you were little, it's a good metaphor for life. In, yeah, when people came up to you and said hi, hi, Sean, you, you're go, reaction was, yeah, <laughs> you just, the, the problem was he could always fly away with his ears. <laughs> <laughs> no one could catch up. <laughs> this is cyberbully. Well, I was. It was a strong wind, and I would hold on with my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> That's how you would hold the magic feather. <laughs> so you learn to clamp down. So she bit you and you never bit anyone again. That's a story. Yeah. yeah. Well, where, where are we going? All right. With, so we have talked about this. focusing on bounce. The other thing is, which is practical, turn off notifications. Yeah. Um, those are app developers way of trying to hijack you. Yeah. And so you can do that. Um, we also have to be aware of who's at higher risk for depression and the vulnerability exists. And this is the individual differences. If you have a a child who's prone to uh, experience their emotions intensely, engage in social interaction, might be very relational, that tool in itself can become very problematic. And then the use of that tool can intensify negative emotions. Someone who's experienced that, obviously you have to pull that away. Um, It's not, there aren't universal recommendations for everybody because everyone is so different. Um, we have to teach, I think, um, a more mindful and realistic view of social media. So that's having conversations about how fake it is and trying to get your kids not to engage in that fake world along with your use of it should be, you know, productive or pro-social. And when it doesn't, you know, it has to be lines that are drawn and there's education around that. So parents have to be involved. Model uh, your own restraint and balance your own media diet yourself parents so if you are not practicing what you're preaching remember that modeling is extremely important in learning the other thing is we have to be so careful of sleep we didn't talk enough about sleep Mm -hmm. but we know that the use of social media impairs sleep specifically for this vulnerable generation there's no way phones should be in their rooms phones should not be in your kids' rooms. And you should, if you're thinking about the best interest of sleep, so I don't want to put shoulds on things, but the best interest of sleep, around two hours prior to bedtime would be a really good time to kind of shut everything down. I know it's not always realistic in today's school academic environments because phones are used for purposes of doing homework Mm -hmm. and other things. And if you're busy with sports and doing a lot of other things, sometimes you're doing homework late at night. I have to experience that with my kids. But it's something to really be mindful of, especially on weekends. So one, one final point, because I think you guys are looking to wrap, to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, because you made that, I thought you made an interesting comment about AI, mm-hmm. robots, and being able to develop social connection to AI. And I do think human beings are vulnerable to that. Because there's one thing that we've learned through some of these Harvard longitudinal studies across lifetimes. Yes. You know, you see some people can drink and smoke and eat bad and they live till they're like 100 years old. Yeah. 
and then others like live a completely healthy lifestyle and you know drop dead at 55 or mm-hmm. younger is that the one thing that stands consistent is loneliness kills yeah loneliness kills i i just saw a video uh yesterday with that psychologist or the harvard uh researcher talking about that that one point of like social connectedness is the one factor that leads to longevity um and if we're staying on our devices we're missing out on the most important element of human survival which is connecting to a human being Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.